Man, I miss reading fiction. It's a tonic, <laughs> you know. It's so it's so good to to um, spend a while pretending that the lives of imaginary people matter. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, right. I, I mean. <laughs> I, I I feel like grad school. I know this. This happens to a lot of people that I know. You go to grad school and it kind of kills um, all reading for you because reading becomes your job, and so all you do every day is read. And then when it comes time to relax, you're like, I can't possibly do more reading um, by sitting down with a novel. I mean, so you know, at least that's what happened to me. And so, like rediscovering my love of novels, what got me into uh, what I'm doing now, right? Is like being. Um, I can only imagine that if I were, you know, 20 years younger um, right now, I would be ripping through every Cory Doctorow novel and it would be putting me on uh, a very similar path that I'm on now. Huh. But it was other it was other novels. It was like Kim Stanley Robinson and these kinds of things that, you know, is ripping through and then, you know, put, puts you on a path to actually really care about and want to study and think and write and read about these things. And then it kills all of your ability to actually sit down and and enjoy those those things because oh well that's that's not work or oh I want to do something else in my relaxation time but sitting down with your new novel was was such a joy oh well thank you I mean there's a dirty secret which is that if you're if you're writing um, and reviewing and blurbing all your friends and all the new people who are exciting and whatever then reading for pleasure can also feel a little burdensome um, although yeah less so, less so, less so. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 257 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are uh, ecstatic to be joined by returning champion, friend of the show, and author of the new novel, Red Team Blues, Corey Doctorow. Corey, thanks for coming back on uh, within just a few months to talk about a different book that you have published and are promoting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't stop writing them. I, uh, I got like seven more coming out. I write when I'm anxious. That's my secret. I love that. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like I have not done nearly as much writing since I left Vice, or most of the writing is now doing like long form stuff in the background. And I was like, oh, I'll write all the time, I'll write all the time, and I can't do it. And I, but I always do feel inspiration seeing how much you write, how thoughtful all of it is. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot. I, we have a mutual admiration society here, Ed, because I love your work. Although I hear you're writing science fiction now. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Stay in your lane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, um, it'll, I hope it'll be fun. Um, or I hope it'll be, it'll be good. Uh, I've, I'm, I've wanted to do science fiction for a long time. And I thought I would never get to do it. And so when Logic was like, hey, do you want to, would you, I pitched them a few things and I feel like they're, they like the sci-fi story the most. So it'll be fun. It's about a, it's about a sentient artificial fungus that sits at the heart of this massive computational substrate that a bunch of explorers find in a distant uh, solar system, and they and their plans and attempts to take control of it, and its attempts to also play them against it. That sounds amazing. You know, Annalie Newitz is working on a slime mold novel. You guys should Ooh. get together and, and do a crossover. Okay. Emily knew it. I'll definitely look. Uh, yeah, Annalie knew it. Annalie knew it. It's from okay. Gizmodo and Ars Technica, mm-hmm. formerly the EFF. Yeah, they are yeah. terrific. Oh, okay. 
What can you tell me also a little bit about their slime mold book? Because I'm uh, now that I have or been working on that idea, I would love to also read other people's work in that sort of arena. Ideas people have about using organisms. Yeah, stories. I don't know much. They were my interlocutor on my tour stop at the San Francisco Public Library, and ah, uh, yes. they were telling yeah, me yeah. that they were just on their way to uh, talk to an expert about slime molds. Um, uh, you know, slime molds can do this uh, kind of massively parallel computation that can solve problems that computer science struggles with, the, the so-called MP-hard, MP-complete problems, like traveling salesmen and knapsack problems. And so uh, this is about like, uh, I don't think the slime molds are sentient. They might be. I don't know. But they're they're definitely capable of doing cool computer things that uh, biological or that um, digital computers can't do. Interesting. If I'm not mistaken, I think I saw something like on PBS, like in the 80s, about Japanese subway systems using slime molds. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They used them to solve the the traveling salesman problem and figure out what the optimal new lines and stations were. It's mm-hmm. crazy for my brain to be able to retain something like that with my <laughs> weed I smoke. Well, and, yeah. and the Japanese subway systems are also like really deeply um, based on cybernetic theories as well. So it's this really interesting combination of looking at biomimicry, looking at cybernetics, and all to solve these like extremely hard problems in computation. Well, and you know, this book is a book about a guy whose superpower is spreadsheets, and, yeah. and in particular, like. Um, uh, investigating and like climbing inside the shear between what the spreadsheet says is going on and what's going on in the real world. And like, you know, going beyond the normal auditor process of just assuming the stuff in the boxes is right and actually interrogating the kind of pattern of the things in the boxes. He's he's a forensic accountant who busts Silicon Valley scams. So this is his uh, whole bread and butter is like, busting tech bros who think they're so smart that they can hide their money in a spreadsheet and not realize that he can find their money using the same tool. Yeah. I would, I would love to talk about like uh, the, you know, maybe roots or influences that led you to also center cryptography at, at this, because I think the, the core concept, you know, him coming in and helping out or, you know, supposed to uh, try to help, um, Danny uh, find the, the the keys that are necessary for uh, his um, cryptocurrency in some ways reminded me of uh, what I had encountered with Mr. Robot, but only in that Mr. Robot felt like a very more like kind of flatter, more one dimensional, like, well, of co- like this is what we can kind of, you know, communicate in this, in the confines of a, of a show and, and where you ended up taking uh, these ideas were so much more, interesting and uh, and exciting as a thriller i think well that, that's very flattering i mean mr robot's tech consultant was a, a brilliant pen tester from uh deerfield michigan coradonna yeah. yeah. who worked on um who worked on a bunch of uh automotive pen testing yeah. before he ended up in in hollywood he's, also not he's to say right. that i thought mr robot's was no, flat, no. I, I guess meaning comparison or, or yeah no no, no. but i'm saying but yeah. like i wanted to say that like i think that um the thing that are, are the overlap among the work is a real sense of information security, like how it works in the real world, what the um, real world equities are, what the real world boondoggles are, 
Um, the, again, that shear between what we assume is true and what actually is true. There's a lot of information security that's like the digital equivalent of that heist at the Apple store last month where the Apple store was like had an incredible alarm system and all kinds of incredible security features, but it shared a wall with a Starbucks that was just made out of like drywall and the Starbucks didn't have any uh, security. And so they just broke into the Starbucks and then used like a, you know, an eight ounce ball peen hammer to like go through the drywall and walked in and stole everything, right? A lot of information security is just like finding the part that, that you missed. Um, you know, so to back up a little, Red Team Blues is a novel about this 67-year-old forensic accountant who's been in Silicon Valley busting Silicon Valley scams for 40 years. And he's semi-retired. He drives around in this luxury tour bus called the Unsalted Hash that he got by uh, saving a rock star's ass. The guy's manager had stolen all his money, and he'd gone out and fitted out this this luxury tour bus because he figured he was going to have to tour for the rest of his life. But um, Marty busts the the crooked manager and his deal is he gets uh, he gets 25% of whatever he recovers. And in this case, it was enough to cover one giant luxury tour bus. So he's got this marble topped, uh, marble countertop luxury tour bus that he drives from, you know, the Baja up to Vancouver and back again, taking uh, retirement on the installment plan and occasionally stopping to unwind up uh, a tech bros uh, finance scam. And one of his old pals is a cryptographer from the days when crypto meant cryptography, who's unwisely decided to make a cryptocurrency and even more unwisely built a backdoor into it. Uh, and now the keys have gone missing, and he's worried that um, the money launderers who rely on his system and whose billions are about to go poof are going to hunt him down and flay him alive. And so Marty has to find the keys. And in so doing, he finds himself in the middle of a double cross between two different criminal syndicates, which is being further complicated by a bunch of uh, incompetent and crooked three-letter U.S. agencies. And and even though he's now found over a billion dollars and a 25% commission, he's, he's you know, uh, more than a centimillionaire, he has to survive long enough to actually collect the money and, and spend it. And so this is kind of his last adventure. And, you know, for me, the cypherpunks are like an interesting kind of riddle, right? I, I've been involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation for 20 years. Um, and, you know, my kind of entryway into digital human rights was reading The Hacker Crackdown by Bruce Sterling in the early 90s, which tells the story of um, Operation Sun Devil and the raids on Steve Jackson games. And, you know, more than just the spectacular elements of that, which were like subjecting teenagers who were just doing the equivalent of digital graffiti to big boy felony charges and um, also insisting that, you know, also uh, seizing a bunch of computers belonging to a beloved um, role-playing game company. There were like these really important principles at play, like the the idea that um, seizing an email server and reading the email on it didn't require a warrant, right? Which, you know, was this really important case that um, was far more important than just the question of whether or not like an RPG manual had been mistaken by the Secret Service for a cybercrime book. It, you know, it was the, the method that they went after that um, that had the power to set a precedent that would say that, you know, you would not get the basic privacy protections for email that you would get for any other kind of communication. And, you know, the cypherpunks were a mix of outlooks. Some of them were really hard right conspiratorialists, you know, thinking of uh, Tim Tim May there. 
Um, some of them were uh, profoundly committed to human rights, but uh, had a political outlook that um, I don't share in many ways. People like John Gilmore who went on to help start EFF. Some of them were in between. Some of them were just like wild ass uh, anarchist leftists like uh, Tom Jennings, who edited Homocore and uh, started Fidonet and, and was... Uh, um, also the guy who cloned the PC ROM for Phoenix and made gateway and Dell and compact and all those other PC clone companies possible. They're a real mix. Right. And the, the thing that was interesting is back then, although there was some talk about cyber cash and the idea that you could make money that was not under government control. Um, most of the emphasis on that was about, uh, uh, some mix of uh, paranoid and principled human rights stuff. You know, the government's going to come and take your money, uh, but also stuff that we would recognize today. The government is going to interdict sex workers. The government is going to interdict dissidents. The government is going to use financial censorship uh, to do bad things. Um, and uh, so fast forward a couple of decades and you got cryptocurrency coming out of the great financial crisis, which is just like bimetallism, you know, hardcore gold bug stuff with, with cryptography. And there's a, a, a cleavage in the way that we think about uh, the cypherpunks now, you know, like, are they um, champions of privacy and digital human rights who want to make sure that people who are threatened by powerful adversaries can always find a way to talk to one another? Or are they people who, um, you know, want to run a, a grift where they pretend that their uh, cryptocurrency is money and make billions of dollars and then, you know, run away before the, before the bubble pops? Or, you know, what, what is their meaning? And so writing a story about cypherpunks and cryptocurrency got at the center of what the Marty Hench books are about, because there's two more, which is the way that finance capital curdled the idealism and the dream of a uh, technology that could be a source of human liberation. You know, it was always there, it was always latent, but um, there was a, a gradual transformation that made um, the sense of mission and technology become much more of a cover for you know, some pretty odious conduct than anything anyone believed in. You know, the, the canonical thing here is people making fun of don't be evil. But, you know, Google hired a ton of engineers who could have taken their pick of, of jobs because they genuinely didn't want to work in a place that was evil, right? Like, it, 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 it meant something. And it meant that, you know, when Google decided to go and, like, start making AI for drones, a bunch of those people were like, I took this job to not be evil, and I am someone who has a lot of labor power, and I'm going to insist that you not make me do evil things or be an evil place. And then the uh, the the struggle there is always as well. Like at, you know, the it really shows how unequal that power is. Is even though you do have these engineers that do have a lot of labor power and can command you know very competitive high salaries on an, on the market and go elsewhere, like they actually have the real ability to move to go work elsewhere to or retire if they want to right just take an early retirement when they're 40 years old or whatever um and and yet like we see as well that uh google we don't really have to listen to you actually like we're gonna we're gonna keep taking these contracts we're gonna take bigger and bigger contracts actually um we're gonna fire people and do it in the most like controversial <laughs> way possible um and 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 uh, I, I think it really does show, and this is one thing that I really love as the basis of 
of this book and the next two books that you've got planned um, of kind of looking at this this real intersection between um, financial capitalism and technological capitalism and really showing that like you know at the end of the day it's like who what what what's wagging the dog here you know is it the idealism of the possibility that you know these technologies might bring liberation and emancipation or even just you know make people's lives a little bit better even um, or is it the 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 uh, you know return on investment the uh, you know imperative to accumulate capital the inability to pass up a good scam a good get rich quick scheme of any kind um, and and then you know what's that uh, and I, I think your book does your your book here does a really great job of of kind of showing what that looks like um, that the the idealism when when you're confronted with the possibility of making a an easy billion dollars through a cryptocurrency um, your idealism suddenly becomes a lot more discounted yeah as as the characters like to say a billion dollars here a billion dollars there pretty soon you're talking real money exactly exactly and 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 also i think john because there is such a um I mean, I, we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but you've already mentioned that this is a planned trilogy, and you've told me a little bit about what the uh, the next two books are that you've got outlined, and I I love the concept. Um, but you know, to to kind of frame that, there is also this. Uh, in, in technology, but also in finance. Um, there's a real kind of ahistoricism that happens constantly too, that like, you know, the, oh, uh, you know, bubbles are not secular. They are just things that happen suddenly at, at, uh, right. at, at uh, you know, uh, unique moments in history or whatever, or, you know, all technology is disruptive and it's never been like that before or anything. When in reality, as we all know, that it's, it's a really um, a red through line that is drawn directly directly through all of these that actually it's a lot more kind of just mirroring the past, replicating the past. Um, and I, I really love, uh, and, and that goes both with the, the kind of the really small scale individual things, but also the really big systemic structural features that lead to these bubbles or lead to these scams or whatever that lead to, um, you know, the, the imperatives and interests that drive the development of technology, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I love the idea of starting a trilogy, looking at you know a, a forensic accounting thriller, focusing on uh, technology and finance, and starting it at the end of the the hero's story. Um, you know, in the contemporary period, where then the next books are going to be looking at um, different moments in, in the past uh, in this relationship between finance and technology. It's such a great way to be able to go back to the past and look at the scams of the 80s or scams of the 90s and look at the the kind of the things that were happening then, but also look at, oh man, this looks really familiar. Um, you know, the, the mm -hmm. cell phones are a lot bigger and a lot brickier, but they're ultimately being used to do much the same stuff. You, you mentioned the spreadsheets. Um, I, I just want to give a plug to a, a, one of the most interesting articles I've read in a long time, and we need to talk about it on TMK, but it's by a historian of technology, William Derringer. Um, it's called Michael Milken's Spreadsheets, and it's about this confluence between Michael Milken, the, the famous junk bond king of the 80s, and VisiCalc. The, the first killer app, you know, the first spreadsheet for the Apple II computer 
and this like real confluence that the the VisiCalc spreadsheet allowed Michael Milken to build his empire of junk bonds because it gave them these much greater capabilities of kind of surveillance in the market of tracking and calculating extremely and creating extremely complex derivatives and all of that stuff and that he was really one of the first huge proponents of the VisiCalc um, as a as a as a revolutionary tool and and then the 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 movie Wall Street um, you know there's always these scenes of Gordon Gecko and on his like his office is full of these you know CRT monitors and on all of those monitors is the familiar green VisiCalc spreadsheet you know i think that the best way to understand Milliken's relationship to spreadsheets is is, is a cybernetic one right? He's, he's taking in feedback. He's like in an OODA loop, right? Like he's taking in feedback, he's uh, analyzing it, he's responding, and then he's acting, right? He's, it's, it's blitzkrieg, but for markets. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, he, he said that the spreadsheet made junk bonds possible. My, my uh, host at my event in Mountain View was Mitch Kapoor, who created Lotus uh, and helped found EFF. And he told the story of, of, of Milken uh, blaming or crediting spreadsheets with creating all these complex financial derivatives, and, and that, that, that that's a really interesting like blaming or crediting because uh, Michael Milken did blame the technology. He said, it wasn't me. I didn't do this. The technology just... I'm a prisoner of the great forces of history. Exactly. The, or, the, or the technology made it too sweet to turn down. When it's railroad time, you get railroad barons. <laughs> exactly. And now it's, it's spreadsheet time, so you get spreadsheet barons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I think as well that idea that like... And this goes back to um, the book Red Team Blues, this idea that like... Um, I'm just a slave to the technology or the, or I'm seduced by it, right? I'm either controlled by it or I'm drawn in by it. Um, but it gives a lot of agency to the technology for, uh, these decisions that, um, people made for very specific reasons. Yeah. I mean, I think that's Marty Hench's shtick, right? Is he understands the technology well enough to kind of burst the bubble of the ghost story where you hold the, the, the uh, flashlight under your chin and say, you know, the computer made me do it where, you know, or or it's, you know, unknowably complex. It's the singularity. So we can't know it. I wanted to correct you slightly about, about um, this being a trilogy. It's three books, but it may not be a trilogy. There may be more of them. Uh, and while I'd like to to take credit, I'd love to hear that. (laughs) I don't want to put an endpoint on your series. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and they're all done by the way, the next one comes out in February, the bezel and the following one is the (laughs) following January. (laughs) I I seriously have seven books in the can. Uh, but, um, the, uh, I, I didn't mean to write more than one. So I, um, I'm not kidding. I write when I'm anxious. So like lockdown hit and I climbed in the hammock in the backyard and basically sat there from 5 a.m. to like 7 p.m. every day until the following Christmas and just wrote and worked. And uh, when you write constantly in that stream, I mean, like is, does it come out as as you look at it? Is the writing process something else? I mean, the editing process something else entirely? Or is it just like writing, writing, editing? Yeah, the the editing is something different. I'm a, I'm a pantser more than a plotter, right? So I'm just kind of making it up as I go. Um, I have a kind of heuristic, which is you've got a person in a place with a problem who tries intelligently to solve the problem, fails through no fault of their own because we like to watch people who aren't doomed. Uh, things get worse. So they've got a new problem. The tension goes up. They try intelligently to solve the problem, fail through no fault of 
of their own. Things get worse. Keep doing that until you run out of thing, ways that things can get worse. That's the climax. And it either has a happy ending or a sad ending. And then you have a denouement, right? Like that's the basic structure of most Western narratives. And if you've got that rule of thumb, like if you know what gradient you're ascending, you can kind of make it work. And if you're writing like two pages a day, 500 words, you've got a whole day to figure out what's going to happen in the next two pages. And it's just kind of going in the back of your brain all the time. And you sit down and you just, just get the next couple of pages done. The key is to know that like, although there are days when it feels like you're just writing shit and days when it feels like you're writing brilliant stuff. And though there are uh, passages that when you go back to edit will be terrible and need rewriting and passages that are fine or even great, that they're not correlated, right? Like that how you feel about the work is like related to your blood sugar and your sleep and whether you're hungover and whether you're fighting with your housemates or whatever. And so you just have to be able to like, I liken it to that VR thing where they put a plank on the rug and you put a VR headset on and then you step on the plank and you look down. It's like you're standing on the Empire State Building with a plank sticking out over it. You have to walk out on the plank over the can, you know, New York City Canyon. And it's very hard not to feel terrified, even though like you, you, you know, you know it's a plank on a rug. And the only way to do it is to kind of just tell yourself, like, even though all of my senses are screaming that I'm in mortal peril, this is just fine. And in the same way, you need to be able to sit down at the keyboard and, like, all of your senses are screaming, these are terrible words, you've come up with stupid things to say, don't bother saying them, you need to come up with better things before you can start typing. It may be true, but it's probably not. And if it is, then you'll fix it later. But like, you have no way to know, right? The only way to know is to write the words. Uh, and if you're a prisoner to your endocrine system, uh, then you won't get much done, right? So, so I, I wrote this. I, I, I sat down and I sat in the hammock and I wrote stuff for EFF and I wrote my blog and I wrote a couple of books and I wrote some short stories and I had four books come out and I toured them virtually during lockdown, did all this stuff. And then the following Christmas, I just basically said, okay, I'm taking a couple of weeks off and doing nothing. And then after two weeks, I sat down and I wrote this book in six weeks flat. Like it just came blaming out of my fingertips. And I, I, um, Sent it to, I gave it to my wife. My wife is a wonderful person who admires my work very much, but has her own goddamn life. And I write too much for her to read everything. And so I, uh, I said, you know, like, honey, I know you don't have time to read everything, but just read the first couple of pages. I think this one's pretty good. And then I rolled over at 2.30 in the morning and she was sitting up in bed next to me. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I just had to find out how it ended. So I thought I was maybe on to something. Well, and then I said, it feels... It's good. Yeah. Thank you. And then I sent it to my editor and my editor also like a swell fella. We met on a BBS when I was 17. Uh, I've known him all my life. He's the only person who's edited my, my, uh, novels, um, dear pal and sort of father figure slash older brother figure. And for all that I admire him, I think that even he would admit that he is not the world's most reliable correspondent. And when I sent him the book, I figured it would be like a month, maybe more. And I heard back the next day, and it was just four lines in an email. That was a fucking ride. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, then he called my agent up and bought three of them. And the thing is, it's Marty's last adventure. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, how do I write three of these, <laughs> right? And so... Um, you know, I thought about Sherlock Holmes, like Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes and the queen told him that he would, she would knight him if he brought Sherlock Holmes back. So he said, oh, he fell over Rickenbacker Falls, but he like held on by his incredibly strong <laughs> fingertips and climbed up and pretended to be dead so he could flush out Professor Moriarty. And now he's back. And, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was created Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
my editor is a, a very powerful publishing executive, vice president at the Macmillan Company, but he can't knight me. So I wasn't gonna <laughs> I wasn't gonna drag Marty out of out of retirement. So you can only um, have one last on, job so many times before it's yeah, actually exactly. your last it's job. Yeah. <laughs> so so instead I, I decided to go back in history and I realized that um, this is actually incredibly good for, for mysteries because there are no continuity problems if you go backwards. Mm. Right, like you're you're like backfilling the continuity. You're not forward filling. The, you don't have to remember what what you wrote before. You can just have it like all go in, in reverse. So so I wrote two more of these, and they're they're going in reverse. The next one's um, a prison tech novel that starts in the kind of uh, glory years of Yahoo when they were buying all the startups, and goes through to the Trump years. And it's about a guy who becomes a Yahoo millionaire but hates it. And um, ends up uh, getting set up by a, a real estate grifter uh, with corrupt L.A. sheriff's deputies who frame him and he goes down for a felony. And he's one of Marty's friends and Marty's kind of helping him out while he's in prison. And it's three strikes era, so he's, he's in prison for a long time. And he gets uh, his prison gets taken over by a private prison tech company that ends visitation, calls the prison library, and replaces them with uh, ebooks and stuff on tablets that are priced at incredibly predatory prices. And then, uh, even worse, uh, they change vendors and they just wipe out everyone's media that you know you've bought uh, out of your commissary account. This really happens. Uh, this is real. And so Marty goes and looks looks into it. And of course, there's never just one ant. The kind of people who would run a company like this are doing all kinds of dirty shit. It's about them trying to bring them down while while this guy's getting jumped by prison gangs who are working for the corrupt prison officials and stuff. It's a it's a fun kind of prison thriller novel about that era. And then the third one is the first adventure of Marty Hench. It starts with him at MIT falling in love with personal computers, getting far too into spreadsheets, flunking out of MIT, becoming a CPA, going west to San Francisco to escape his non-compete clause because they're not enforceable in California. Uh, and he's, he's worked for a doomed startup run by a, a, a Nepo baby who has some grifty idea for a spreadsheet startup. And so he, he, he flees west to, to the Bay Area. And his first job is working for a, a weird PC company. And there were a million of these weird PC companies in those days called The Three Wise Men that's run by a Mormon bishop, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox <laughs> rabbi. And they're a predatory faith scam that um, does multi-level marketing into faith groups. And their computers are designed to be like super extractive so that they've like taken the sprockets off of fanfold dot matrix printers and replaced them with slightly wider space sprockets so you have to buy special paper that costs like 10x and their floppies have got like deliberately introduced bugs in them that make, make it so you have to buy their floppies and his, his job is to track down these three rogue employees uh, a queer orthodox woman who's left the faith because her parents disowned her a mormon woman who's left the faith because um the Mormons wouldn't support the Equal Rights Amendment, and a nun who's become a, a liberation theology Marxist. And they're building um, uh, uh, interoperability products to unlock these people who've been sucked into this, this predatory faith scam so that they can use regular floppies and they can export their data and so on. Marty realizes he's working for the bad guys, and he goes to work for these three women. They I bring down that. the three wise men. I love that. Pretty I fun. love that. That is fun. <laughs> It was so so wow. wow. I mean, this is great too because our 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 uh, uh, 
Patreon episode that just came out before this one, um, we were talking about uh, Tesseral uh, and the the kind of computer as theology, uh, and and uh, and and this really go this this is not old or this is not new either, right? This this idea yeah. of the the kind of the intersections of computational theology here. Uh, I mean, just yeah. fascinating. Also, really fascinating to hear that you only after. Um, you know, hearing from the editor and the publisher, like, we want more of this, you know, only then did you go and write two more because I, you know, knowing, having talked, uh, having talked to you before reading the book and knowing that it, that there were three, three of them in the can and that this was the first one, um, that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I was like noticing all these little, um, parts in the book where you would kind of make reference to Mark like past jobs right or like past sure. e- things in his life and i was just like clever Corey. he's uh he's sowing the <laughs> seeds right now that he's gonna reap um in the next books and then only to find out that actually no you did not plan for that to be the case i was case. just making it up well and you know like i i can take as many or as few of those as i want and write other stories and books based on them and also go you know do that with the previous books as well just sort of uh, anything that I mention, you know, and this is a this is a detective bit, right? This is a detective fiction bit. You know, Holmes is always saying like, "Oh yes, this reminds me of that business when we were in Nottingham, and there was the you know the fellow who uh, we tracked because he uh, stepped in dog shit." And like, it's just a thing, you know, someday Doyle might decide to write that story and they may not. Otherwise, you just get this sense of like, oh, Holmes leads a busy life and he's certainly done more than the whatever 18 cases that are in this book. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you, you mentioned Sherlock and this is like not to be an overly flattering comparison, but there are absolutely some of the, the kind of telltale, um, Sherlockian aspects, uh, in, in the, uh, in the book, especially thing, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything or give anything away because it is a real page turner. I, 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 a page ripper, I would, I would call it because, um, uh, I've, I've been seeing a lot of people you've been retweeting and other people posting being like, you know, I read this in one day. Um, and that seems to be a theme. And, and, uh, I, I didn't read it in one day, but that's only cause I, I had to stop myself. I've got, I've got a life. Right. I've got other things to do. Molly White <laughs> said, don't read it before bed or you'll be up all night. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Correct. <laughs> Which seems to be what happened <laughs> to your wife. Night. Like yeah. literally exactly what your wife did. Yeah. I, uh, it was like 5 a.m. and I was like, well, I finished the book and I slept a little bit. Maybe like three hours and I woke up next day and I was like, why do I feel like complete shit? Oh yeah. It's cause I stayed up all night. <laughs> so you were, you were in like a K hole, but yeah. it was a, it was a forensic accountancy. Honestly, hole. Yeah. You know, <laughs> much, a much more pleasurable than a K hole though. Let me tell you that. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I love that you, that to turn something like forensics accounting into a page ripping novel with very kind of, Sherlock asked, but you know, there are, there are parts where, you know, Marty has to go in disguise and things. And those things kind of made me think of Sherlock who, you know, Sherlock Holmes would regularly kind of go in disguise and be amongst people or, um, kind of make himself unrecognizable and think, you know, those kinds of aspects. But like, I, I, I did want to ask about the, the, the topic itself, not just, you know, crypto, obviously, you know, you've got in your acknowledgements that all of the, the, the things that happen with cryptocurrencies, especially in that period from, you know, 
COVID onward, you know, so 2020 is really the, the boom period for, for the COVID uh, scam economy. And that's when you were writing these books. And so that gave you a lot of fertile ground there to, to think about. Um, but I, I wanted to ask is, more so, why forensics accounting? Um, I mean, I, I I I love it. I'm 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 always a big proponent of that. Like, um, and this comes in in the book a little bit as well. That like, you know, I I think the the IRS is uh, one of the agencies that has some of the most radical potential of any government agency, but it's completely squandered. Um, but if only the accounting um, were used as a weapon in the way that it should be, um, or, or rather a weapon uh, po you know, poised against the right people in the way that it should be, it could actually undermine and take down um, a lot of the uh, capitalist economy and the ca uh, you know, capitalist uh, domination and wealth and all that. And so I wanted to ask about what drew you to forensic accounting and also how did you research it? Because this is, you know, you, you said that this is a book that, you know, just flew, flew out of you in six weeks period, but it is also a meticulously researched book. It is very detailed in a lot of kind of technical aspects, but also very detailed in, in terms of like the 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 things that happen are clear are clearly very thought out. Um, they are they don't have a an, they don't seem to me as being just on the off the top of the head. Um, and so I wanted to ask about that, like forensics accounting, but then also the kind of process of researching this. I'm going to go in the other direction, tell you about the the process of researching it, which will tell you why it's about forensic accounting. Um, so I, I have a method for all of this stuff. I call it the Memex method, you know, in, in uh, tribute to uh, Venevar Bush, uh, the mem my, my memory expander here, and it's blogging. Um, so if you take everything that seems important enough to make note of, and rather than keeping it in like your little commonplace book where you just scribble shit that you're never going to be able to read or understand, you uh, write it up in a way that an audience of, you know, even notional strangers, but maybe actual strangers can make sense of it. Then you not only fix it mnemonically in the back of your mind, but you also put it in a database that you can like do queries against because that's what WordPress is, right? And so you end up um, with this kind of super saturated solution in your brain of fragmentary ideas that are always just knocking together and periodically they'll like nucleate and crystallize into a story or a novel or whatever. So a lot of this stuff was researched not by saying, I want to write a forensic accounting novel, let's go find out about forensic accounting. It was like spending years following the Panama Papers and the LuxLeaks and SwissLeaks and all of these other things. I, I actually sometimes call this like IRS files fanfic. And, you know, one of the things that's remarkable when you read these um, excellent journalistic breakdowns of what's in those big finance leaks is that you see that the scams that these enablers, you know, the Mossack Fonseca's of the world come up with, um, you see the scams that they come up with, just they suck. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. They, they're like, it's like, you know, the joke about like, uh, you know, Rot 13, which is like this, uh, it's not really encryption, it's just a way of scrambling a message. It used to be used to like um, uh, hide spoilers. And so what you do is you take every letter and you rotate it 13 
positions forward. Mm -hmm. And then to unscramble, you rotate it 13 positions more, which is 26 and it goes around the alphabet. Right. And so like a lot of the scams, when they, when they unravel them in IRS files or whatever, it's like the old joke that the way to make rot 13 twice as strong is to make it uh, rot 26. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 um, you know, the, the, like you just see them going like, oh well, we we uh, you know we took these assets and we put them in a Scottish trust, and then we took the Scottish trust and we put it in a Guernsey trust. Then we took the Guernsey trust, and we put it in the Scottish trust. And I'm like, just wait a second, wait a second, because you're like, presumably the reason you put it in the Guernsey trust is you think the Scottish trust isn't robust against your adversary. What does putting it in there twice get you? Fun, right? Like it's, uh, billings, yeah, I think yeah, is yeah, what it gets yeah, you, yeah. right? Because if you're Mossack Fonseca, it's like I did three, I did three finances, yeah. not one finance. Mm-hmm. So I get paid by the finance and I did three of the finances. So it's just, it's just fucking nonsense. And you look at it and you're like, now that it's unraveled, it kind of seems like the IRS isn't even trying. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and Maria Farrell uh, wrote a really good review of this on Crooked Timber. And she says, you know, the average, um, hard-boiled detective is basically a cop who does things the cops can't do. You know, they know who the guilty guy is, but they can't get a warrant. And so the the private eye goes where the cops can't go. He breaks in and he steals the files and finds the girl tied up in the back room and whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Marty Hench is a guy who does things the IRS can't do, right? He just like, he uses methods and he adheres to a different standard of proof and doesn't have to litigate the things that he finds. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result, he is able to do things that the IRS should be able to do, but can't for various kind of political and institutional constraint reasons. And, and um, that I think is the, um, is the kind of secret sauce of this book, right? Is that it's really showing that, beyond the performative complexity of so many finance grifts where like the, you know, the term Migo, my eyes glaze over, you know, you make the prospectus thick enough that the Mark assumes there must be something good in it. Just like if you have a pile of shit, that's big enough, there's got to be a pony under it. Uh, and, um, the, you know, it, it, it kind of strips away that performative complexity in the way that like, you know, John Oliver does on a good day, but it does it while being part of a story. And it really makes you realize that these guys who seem to be doing something very complicated because they've got an, a jargon because they've got um you know expertise in in very esoteric areas because they ha- have ruled out certain kinds of experience as being valid so you know when you talk about the problems of finance crime they just don't let you rule in you know, tax base erosion or, or other things that are wrong. Or oftentimes when I write about finance crime on my blog and call it tax evasion, people will say, oh, no, 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 it's tax avoidance, right? And it's not tax avoidance, it is tax evasion, right? When, when, when Peter Thiel stuffs $5 billion worth of um, PayPal shares into a Roth IRA at effectively 0% tax because it's before they've been um, valued against any external market actor. And then now that they've matured into $5 billion, can cash them out and not pay any tax. That's tax evasion. It's not tax optimization. And the idea that like, oh, well, the tax code isn't specific enough. You know, there are many areas of law in which we encourage the judiciary to interpret both the uh, uh, letter and the intent of the statute, you know, oftentimes at EFF, we will have people show up with schemes for how to do things that exploit some, um, seeming, 
uh, lacuna or omission in the law, right? Um, I think of, uh, there used to be a dumb peer-to-peer network called Aimster that was a competitor of Napster's. And uh, the guy who ran it was tired of Recording Industry Association of America forensic experts gathering data on the pirate files in it. So he rot 13 all the file names. And then he said by rot 13 them again, they were violating Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which prohibits uh, bypassing effective means of access controls. I remember talking to our lawyers then, them just saying like, you know what? This doesn't pass the giggle test. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like you're going to put it in front of a judge and the judge is going to say, I'm sorry, it's ridiculous. And that's going to be the end of the case. Right. And so this idea that, oh, well, Peter Thiel figured out how to, how to you know, get $5 billion uh, out of his PayPal shares tax free because he, you know, did this like weird kabuki where he pretended that, that you know, he was uh, salting away assets with no value in a Roth IRA when he had no income because he pretended he didn't have income too. You know, it's like one of the only domains where we say, oh, well, pfft, you got me on the technicality. I guess you, keep, you get to keep your $5 billion. In, in most other domains, we would say, I'm sorry, so owner get the fuck of the... Up. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, you just don't pass the legal test. I had this whole plan once to um, get through border crossings with my laptop where I was going to have like a password for my hard drive, but I was going to delete the password and... Um, when I crossed the border and there would be like 10 passwords and they would not be memorizable and I'd have a friend who wasn't in the border zone and he would be under instructions not to give me the password unless he was sure that I wasn't under uh, border control. And so I would delete the password before I crossed the border. And then if they said decrypt your hard drive, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, I bounced this off our lawyers and they were like, they're just going to put you in jail until your friend gives them the password. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, this, this, you know, you, you are ignoring some really right. important aspects here, but like <laughs> yeah. when it's the IRS showing up at the door of someone right. who's done one of these dumb scams, they're like, well, you got me on the technicality. <laughs> I guess the monkey's paws curled, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it really shows as well that it's just, that's a can't not in the sense that they, they can't do it because they don't have the capability or, 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 um, anything like mm-hmm. that. It's a can't in the, in the, in the sense of won't. They, they can't yeah. do it because they won't do it and they won't do it because of these other things, because of political concerns, because of power, uh, differentials, because of institutional, uh, you know, directives, whatever. Right. And, and, and it's like, they can, you know, who can take advantage of that can't in the sense of won't, um, is a very, you know, select group of people. Uh, and then if a lot of what you just explained as well, the, the, the sense that like, you know, a lot of these scammers just as uh, with a lot of these tax evaders have, have really, you know, they've, they've grown lazy, um, because they don't have mm-hmm. actual adversaries. And so that's why all of the scams look so, transparently like scams or all of the tax evasion looks so transparently like tax evasion because yeah. they're, they're, they're flaunting it. They're like, I don't have to be, I'm, I, I'm not going up against uh, Marty Hinch. You know, I'm not going up against right. some forensic accounting wonderkin who's really out to draw blood. Um, I'm going up against the IRS, my friends and buddies, you know? Yeah. Um, and, yep. and, 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 you know, one of the reasons they, they won't and can't is because they can, they can claim credibly that they can't, right? They can, they've got like, they can use it as cover. They can say, oh, well, you found that loophole and I'm incapable of, of uh, plugging that loophole. It's for Congress to do. 
Exactly. Exactly. And, and it, it, uh, all that you just explained as well made me think, of course, about another, uh, uh, bet noir of yours, the, you know, Hollywood. And this is exactly Hollywood accounting, um, to a T where you, you, uh, pay the left hand, um, uh, $50 million with the right hand. And then you say, and now I've got no money. Um, and this movie yep. made no money and we're bankrupt. Yep. Uh, you know, and that's exactly how the Hollywood accounting works. Yeah, the laziness is amazing. So, you know, I, I, I um, in fiction, we have this critiquing term, the idiot plot. And that's where uh, a plot that only works because someone was an idiot. They're really unsatisfying plots, right? So the, the MacGuffin of this book, the kind of the inciting incident, is that this new cryptocurrency is based on something called secure enclaves. These are the um, secure coprocessors or specialized areas of your main processor in your phone and other device that uh, is used to do certain kinds of secure computing. And there's some really interesting applications for it. Foundationally, the idea of one of these little um, coprocessors is that the coprocessor can't be altered by the user, and the coprocessor can observe what the main processor is doing and produce a log of it, which it can then sign. And so this is a way for you to tell someone else who doesn't trust you that your computer is configured in a certain way. Which is kind of cool, right? Like you can do things like, I want to rent a cloud server. I want to make sure they're not running spyware. I can ask them to send me an attestation describing the build environment and the hardware and whatever of that machine so that I can know that they're not spying on me when I rent their computer. You and I want to play a video game and I want to make sure you're not running an aim hack. I can ask you to submit an attestation to me about how your, your computer is configured. But like your boss wants you to run bossware and doesn't want you to ever uninstall it or like run a thing that traps it and, and tricks it. They can use it that way too. So it's a very kind of mixed blessing. And, and one thing that is um, really important about all these uh, secure enclaves is that they can't be field updated. Because if you can update the secure enclave, you could update it to give false attestations or do malicious things and whatever. So like, once there's a vulnerability or a bug in one of these things, or if the keys that are used to sign attestations leaks, it's game over. There's just nothing you can do. So um, I come up with this incredible Baroque plot that in, to, to get these keys stolen, right? That involves like a computer that's air-gapped and it's literally had like the network interfaces torn off the mainboard with a pair of pliers and then it needs a, a dongle to boot it and that dongle is locked up somewhere else and they have to bump the guy who's carrying it um, w- with a pickpocket they've imported from Covent Garden, the last reservoir of working pickpockets in the world and blah, 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 blah. Anyway... All of this to say that last week, uh, a giant PC vendor announced that their secure enclave keys had leaked because they'd left them unencrypted on a web server that wasn't well secured. Nice. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and like, so, you know, if anything, the, like, the, the Baroqueness of the scams in this book and, and the skullduggery that goes on, it's far more advanced then you know it all looks a lot more like like breaking into the Starbucks and and cutting through the drywall than it does like importing a pickpocket from Covent Garden to 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 go after the guy who's got the the fob on his keychain. Corey, why did you make that happen? They read your book and they're like, <laughs> yeah, right. I lathed it into existence. That's right. Uh, it's so fascinating as well because it makes me think of um, another one of your your uh, your short books that you write, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, which is really this 
critique of the idea that, you know, these tech companies have these mind control arrays and that all of the things that they say they can do around persuasion and behavioral modification that, you know, they, they, they can't do, but we believe they can do, et cetera, et cetera, because for whatever reason, because we want to buy their technology, because we want to critique it, whatever it might be. But we create these, these stories in our head of these really, um, hyper complex, hyper effective kind of operators, right? Like, like they are, they are perfect. They are top of their field. They are able to do all of this stuff or create all these systems and, and, all these stories and it's it's like it's boring to um to write about that in a lot of ways whether it's in a novel or whether it's in nonfiction, to also to, to write about the reality which is that like actually no they're all like extremely incompetent in a lot of ways and they're lying <laughs> um and it's like security is the same way like you were just explaining how you know, this book is full of these, like, you know, these really imaginative, you know, you've got the, the, the kind of red team and blue team is, is crucial here, right? Red team blues, but, you know, uh, blue team is security. Red team is the attacker in, in short, right? And you talk about in the book that, right? Like, you know, the, the, the kind of mantra of blue team of the people playing defense of the, you know, security experts is you have to be perfect, right? You have to always be perfect because all the red team has to do is find one single mistake. And then the whole like thing, like a wall unravels. full of drywall. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but the reality of the situation is the the blue team is not perfect uh, in the real world. They are far from it. Like you, right. there are just so many examples. Um, you would know way more of them than I could, and I can think a lot of a lot of them. FTX was like a a, a whistle stop tour through the kind of way that that a lot of things that you would assume are done very well are done very, very badly, you know? And, and I was also thinking, as you were saying that about, um, you know, one of the, one of the problems with a lot of, uh, anti-corporate corruption law is that it turns on intent, uh, and intent is very hard to prove. So, you know, particularly monopoly law, you have to, you have to actually be seeking to foreclose on competition, not merely to make a product that's so good or fits so well with your product that people are pleased by it. And, and, you know, you would think that this would make it really hard to prosecute monopolistic conduct, and it often does. But then you get like Mark Zuckerberg waking up in the middle of the night and sending his CFO an email saying, we should buy Instagram because our users don't like Facebook anymore and they go to Instagram and we, we want to keep them. And then like two hours later, clearly after the general counsel has called him, sending another like incredibly stiff formal email that says like, uh, for avoidance of doubt, I was speaking colloquially and no way meant that we should foreclose <laughs> upon competition. I am fully in favor of competition. Competition is good. Um, and, you know, it's like, right. it's like, it's not just that like Sam Bankman-Fried had a group chat called Wire Fraud. Like all of these guys have a <laughs> folder on their desktop called like Mens Rea, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like full of documents called like, you know, explicit criminal intent underscore one dot dot. X, the monopoly know, like, we want to build uh, PDF. Yeah. It's like hiding <laughs> your... Do a murder and make it as premeditated as possible. Yeah. I understand that it is a crime and I affirm that here. <laughs> it's like being 13. It's like being 13 and hiding your porn in a in a file that's called like stuff, subfolder things, subfolder nothing certainly to see not here. Porn. Subfolder, yeah. certainly yeah. not porn. Yeah, except Only here we're talking... Only calling it porn! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here we're talking about evidence of fraud. <laughs> you could just do the exact opposite of what I do. I keep all the my files in plain sight on a file on my desktop called pictures of my butthole. <laughs> <laughs>
There you go. Like, oh, I don't want to look at it. I'm gonna, I dare you. That's a dare right there. Jeremy Goza. <laughs> that's that's why Jeremy's a blue team expert. You know, that's how you keep that's people right. away. <laughs> he's uh, he knows how to black hole those requests. He's got he's got the world's greatest. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Goza because. Uh, I have this theory that I've had for a very long time that Jeff Bezos is actually Ghosty Man. <laughs> you know, his Think identity is known. I like the Think theory, but his identity is known. Okay. Well, <laughs> so, no, the identity you want him to know is known. <laughs> I mean, if you're one time the one time world's richest man, you could pay anybody to be anything you want him to be, right? Sure. Right. <laughs> I think there might be a timeline problem. I think I think Goatsy was when uh, Bezos was only worth a couple hundred thousand bucks. <laughs> oh, yeah, not quite. Not Speaking quite. Premeditation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The fact of like all the way that you know all of this stuff is like so insecure. There's all this evidence of fraud or whatever. In fact, you know, talking about, I mean, on one hand, it speaks as well to what we were what we were saying about the reality of the situation is not that like they have to hide it from um, these red teams who are constantly going after it. They just have to hide it from um, an IRS or an SEC, yeah, uh, who are plausible deniability. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and the, uh, going back as well to talking about that, like a lot of it revolves around intent and intent is, is like insanely difficult to prove is also a real, I mean, if anything, that's the real master stroke, um, of a, of a lot of this is making corporate, the corporate law and the enforcement and punishment of it based on something that is impossible to prove. Um, except when you're really <laughs> dumb, uh, and send your CFO emails at 2 a.m. Right. But it makes me right. think as well about like something I spend entirely too much time for my own sanity thinking about, which is the insurance industry. Sure. Um, and I mean, I like, I like to say, and it's only, you know, it it's mostly true that the, um, the one reason why it's so difficult to prove discrimination in the insurance industry. And now that a lot of the insurers use different, you know, black boxed, uh, quote unquote, artificial intelligence, machine learning systems that, you know, regulators or researchers don't have access to that. A lot of the proof of discrimination in insurance comes down to pinky promise that you knowingly did not use protected data about a protected right. class to make this decision. And then they say, okay, right. I pinky promise. I did not know that data going into this machine learning system was right. you know, a proxy for and it's like it, a lot of it comes down to the the no, did you knowingly discriminate did you create a system intentionally that would discriminate and the insurance industry also had to learn the hard way that you can't have people in a back room somewhere with a map and drawing red lines saying we don't loan to people living in this area um, because that's evidence of intent. And so instead they've smuggled right. it through machines that you can't prove intention because the machine has no right. intention. Right, right. And, and, you know, like it's funny because there's a weird history to this. Uh, in terms of the way that Google talked about its search ranks that I think gets into this stuff we were talking about earlier, which is like the distinction between the 
you know, minds and character of individual Googlers and the um, company's own kind of character as like a, a remorseless artificial life form seeking to maximize paper clips. And, you know, in the, in the old days, people who made the web kind of all knew each other. And there was a lot of people who were very angry that um, they weren't getting good Google results. And they would tell Google, you are putting me in the wrong place. When I go to Yahoo, I, you know, tell the person who's in charge of this vertical where my site goes. And then they put it there and they were right because my site is clearly relevant to this. And you didn't put it even in the first page of it. And there are other things that I will tell you are like manifestly worse that are in the first page. And I think this was like uncomfortable for them. I think they just didn't like it. It, it. it made them feel like kind of sad and 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 unhappy to be cornered in this way. And so they they came up with a little story, which was the way to make your page show up at the top of Google is to make it as good as possible because that's the signal we're really looking at. How good is your page? And if you just make the page as good as possible, we will find it and we'll put it there. Like we're doing math. We go into the Plato's cave. Uh, we rotate 180 degrees. We find the page that is most relevant to cats. And then we put it at the top of the search result. And if your page isn't at the top of the search result, it's because you are not mathematically the best. And, and so for a long time, like this was a good story. Uh, and it certainly like made them more popular parties because they wouldn't have to answer the question like, why isn't my cat page at the top of the results for cats? But then um, a bunch of governments were like, oh, wait, uh, the search results are just math which means there's no speech interest. This isn't like the um, editor assembling the, the you know, above the fold on the New York Times front page. This is just, you're just like, like a dungeon master con consulting a lookup table, right? Like you're not doing something creative here. You're just doing math. There's no protected speech. We're going to order you to stop putting things in search results or to put things at the top of search results because there's no speech interest there. And at that point, they got Eugene Volokh to write a really good banger of a paper saying programmers are exercising editorial judgment. They exercise that at a remove, right? They, they uh, have a thing that they're looking for. They write a program to produce a search rank. They look at the search rank and they make an editorial judgment about whether or not the program they wrote uh, uh, reaches to the uh, expressive element that they were trying to create. And if it does, then they leave the program. And if it doesn't, then they rewrite the program until it does. And that this is an editorial process. And I think that, um, you know, there is the, the, the pretense that all of this stuff is untouched by human hands is not only wrong, I think ultimately, like, it doesn't serve these firms. These firms really, they, they, they when, when it's socially awkward, they like to say that it's just math, but, um, when, uh, but, but what they eventually all come to realize is that if it's just math, then they lose a really important regulatory shield, right? The, which is the, the free expression shield, because people just don't get exercised about someone saying, you know, make that seven a six in the way they do about don't put that search result at the top of the page. I'm, I'm interested also in your, in your thoughts in general about, about how you think through the, the sort of the evolution of some of these tech firms and the monopolies that they've they've constructed in relation to maybe your writing or to science fiction in general. I mean, you know, I remember there was this interview that you did um, uh, with the with the New Yorker. I think it was last year about 
and, and a point you've hammered on before about these like mediocre monopolists and their connection to and, and, and their connection to cyberpunk, both in terms of the tech lash and making people more interested in it, but also in revealing like that these people have really weird divergent visions of, of what technology is possible, of what individuals can do and what we should organize our society around. And so, I don't know, maybe I'm, uh, the question I have here is like, do you think that as things have progressed of them as the monopolies of these sort of like mediocre monopolies seem to have taken hold as, uh, they've wedged this war on the public's imagination about what kind of tech we have and what kind of tech we should have. As, as this has gone on, do you think the type of science fiction one that the public is interested in has shifted? And then also do you think the type of science fiction that you've been interested in writing and pursuing has also shifted in, in response to that? Mm. Yeah, that those are that's really good. Um, so I I think that like uh, most leftists understand the rhetorical game Margaret Thatcher was playing when she said there is no alternative. Right? It's it's like another way of saying stop trying to think of an alternative. Right? Foreclosing on this possibility. I think that monopolists have their own version of this, which is um, you know as monopolies grow, as as choice dwindles. And as firms are able to resolve the collective action problem of lobbying for favorable regulation, they become neither disciplined by regulation nor by competition, and they are able to do things that are adverse to the interests of all of their users, right? Not just like their um, end users, you know, you and me, but also like their business customers. Like, we hear a lot about how Facebook is really terrible for um, uh, users, we hear less about how it's really bad for publishers, and we hear almost nothing about how it's really bad for advertisers. But Facebook like rips off all three groups, right? And um, you know, this is a process I've been recently calling inshitification, where you know they use the fact that um, there's a lot of digital knobs that you can twiddle and twirl to uh, allocate and then withdraw surpluses, you know, goodies from different groups of users and then to lock them in. So once the end users are kind of stuck, you can treat them worse and you can use the fact that you're treating them worse. Like maybe you're like Facebook and you're going to promise that you won't spy on your users. But then once they're all locking each other in because they can't agree on where to go, where else to go and when to go, they're holding each other hostage, then you can um, start punishing them by spying on them and rewarding advertisers by using the spy data to give them targeting. And but eventually, like you just end up ripping off the advertisers, ripping off the publishers, ripping off the end users, and making things good for yourself. And um, the story that they tell about this is that you you these are like essential; they're welded together. There is no alternative, right? Like, how would you ever conceivably talk to your friends without getting spied on? Like, I, I can think of it, right? But when you say to Facebook, <laughs> how would that work? They're like. You're asking me for water that's not wet. You're you're yeah. as weird as those people who say like, <laughs> make me make me cryptography that works when when bad guys are trying to break into it, but not when cops are trying to break into it. This is a technically incoherent demand, right? And if you're not technical, it can really bamboozle you, right? And and I think one of the reasons that we have lawmakers who are so willing to demand the impossible, like let's go. Um, 
let's go make uh, uh, you know cryptography that works except when we need it to fail this this chat control thing that's happening in the EU which is just a catastrophe you know in the name of stopping uh, child sexual abuse material and crime and so on things that are like bad but that uh, are going to expose people to so much risk and not achieve their goals and I think one of the reasons that when technologists come out and say this is impossible that they go ah, you're just bullshitting is because there are some really powerful groups of technologists who bullshit when they say that's impossible, right? They bullshit when they say it's impossible to have a search engine that doesn't spy on you. It's impossible to have a phone that works that doesn't rip off every vendor for 30%, a price that gets you know passed on to you. It's impossible to have a social graph tool that isn't surveillant, right? Those are lies. And so they kind of muddy the waters. And I think that science fiction is sometimes posed as a uh, predictive literature, which is the most dismal thing I can imagine, because like if the future can be predicted, then you know why why are we even getting out of bed, right? The future is like depends on what we do. That's I think the the greatest message science fiction has not that it predicts the future, but that it contests the future. It's luddite literature, you know. It's not just like what does the gadget do, but who does it do it for and who does it do it to and how else could it be uh, situated socially and economically in our world. And the thing that I find like so grotesque about Zuckerberg calling it the metaverse and uh, Musk naming his rocket ships after rockets from the culture novels by Ian Banks is that they're taking this literature of contestation and they're using it to, to express inevitabilism, right? They're saying like this literature whose whole point is like, it could be different. And they're, they're using it to say, this will never be different, right? Like this is the, this is the one future, you know, it's the future. Cause you read it about it in the novels and the novels are predictions. And therefore, you know, that what I'm doing it, I am fulfilling the foreordained prophecy of the holy, uh, uh, you know, prophet, saint, uh, Neil Stevenson, uh, <laughs> who who foretold that we would be legless, sexless, highly surveilled, low polygon cartoon characters, right? And and you know, resistance is futile. Abandon hope, all who enter here. And so, like, I I think that there's a lot of science fiction these days that is even more explicitly about d- contrasting ways that a single technology can be configured. So I'm thinking of like how to lose the time war, Annalie Newitz's no- and then Annalie Newitz's novel that I'm just blanking on the title of now. That's about, um, feminists versus meninists who time travel and go back in time to, uh, uh, try to rewrite elements in history to prevent women from gaining social equality. And then they kind of go and revert it. It's like terraformers one. I haven't read that one, but I know that's a book of hers is coming. Okay. No, no, that's her new one. no, it's two novels back. Oh, Future of Another Timeline. So this novel is called Future of Another Timeline. It's, it's Annalie Newitz's novel about dueling feminists and Reddit men's rights activists going back in time to prevent women from gaining social equality or to allow women to do it. And they're all um, parts of the Orange County punk zine scene. And they like run into each other at punk shows in Orange County when they're in the present day. And then they go back in time. It's, it's really it's a fantastic novel, uh, but also like how to lose the time war and just all these books that are, that are uh, about 
in that kind of Ursula Le Guin uh, way of like putting two different cultures side by side and saying, you know, there, that, that there is an alternative, nothing is foreordained. It could be lots of different ways. Ada Palmer is probably the master of this. She's a, a Renaissance historian with tenure at the University of Chicago, who's a heterodox historian of the Inquisition, who is so heterodox that she maintained uh, an anonymous blog called Ex Urbe, which she didn't reveal her authorship of until she got tenure because she was worried it would result in her not getting tenure. And she does this exercise every year with her undergrads where they do a four-week live-action role-playing game where they reenact the election of the Medici's Pope. And she gives them all uh, character sheets with like real people from that election, like cardinals and heads of great family and so on. And they like wheel and deal and backstab and make alliance for four solid weeks and then they what? rent out the fake gothic cathedral on campus at the university of chicago she's got costumes for all of them because she's got a google what? alert for theater companies that are getting rid of their oh. costumes they all dress up in renaissance drag and they go and they elect the pope and every year the of the final four candidates two have never been um uh two have always been in there right the great forces of history bore down on that moment to say that the chosen champions of these two ascendant families would always have a chance at being Pope. And the other two have never once been the same, right? Because human agency matters, right? Like the choices that people make in this simulation completely alter the outcome because history is not on rails. It's got a steering wheel and like we can grab the mother and we can yank it. And you know, that is the kind of science fiction I'm really interested in. And in her tetralogy, the, um, Terra Ignota tetralogy. It's about these like multiple um, overlapping societies on earth that each have their own legal system and people join different affinities and different legal systems. When you meet people, your augmented reality like tells you whether they're allowed to murder you in their legal system. And you have to like decide whether you're going to be in the same space. And they're really great, right? It's just this like completely radical reimagining. And then in her future, um, Telling someone what your gender is is considered incredibly gauche. Uh, it's like telling someone about your most intimate sexual preference. It's like, I really like it when someone's tongue is right there. It's like <laughs> super gross to tell someone what your gender is. And it's like something you only say in your most uh, intimate moments. And just everybody calls each other they. Uh, it's like, it's so great. Wow. I mean, it really is about like, contesting things, right? Mm -hmm. There is an alternative. It could be different. You know, it's like uh, taking what the dispossessed did and like multiplying it by like five orders of magnitude. Damn. Okay. I need to check out this series. First of all, I got it. <laughs> it's great. You'll love it. Also check out her music. Oh, they she's, got, oh, she's a singer and a librettist music? and okay. she's made operas about the Icelandic mythos. She's just like, she's just amazing. She's wow. the world's greatest polymath. Truly, I'm yeah. loving the uh, the historical simulation. The novels sound great, but the historical simulation yeah. as classroom oh, yeah. exercise That'd just be sounds so fucking fun. So fucking Are you kidding good. Me? Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I have I played diplomacy with a bunch of people, and like I love the backstabbing that goes on for months there. But to do a role playing element where you're just doing some fucking election, that's oh yeah, great. It feels like LARPers are really underrated in the whole fiction and things because you know I, I have friends that do tabletop role-playing and then the ones that did 
uh, musical theater are the ones that LARP. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, LARPers, they get a bad name because they're like, it is a bit cringe to see people running around pretending to be vampires or whatever, but like they're living the <laughs> fucking dream. Like I only wish I had the self-confidence to do it. So, and this, these kind of like, they're called like diegetic games, games that teach. They're really, um, an interesting field. So this week I just, I just played for the first time, the digital version of Mike Masnick's moderator mayhem, which Mike's that guy from tech dirt. And he's done this exercise for years as a card game where it's a timed thing where you get these, um, moderation challenges, right? Where you're, you're the moderator for a social network and someone has flagged content for a thing and you have to assess whether the content is on the right side of the policy and either like approve it or block it. And then you'll get, um, uh, users come back and they're like, no, you know, you, you've made the wrong call and you have to decide on their appeal. And then your boss shows up and says things like, uh, you know, that guy you just moderated is running for high office, be more careful next time. And you just have to do it as like a timed exercise really quick and it gets faster and faster. And the, the, then they add like an AI that starts flagging things like, um, oh, that game was so dope. And then it flags it for drug use and you have to decide whether or not it was like, it was drug use and should be knocked out. So they got a digital version now. It's a mobile browser version um, that's where you swipe left and swipe right. It's incredibly good. And basically, I think there's a case to be made that like anyone who has any opinion about how platforms should do content moderation should not be allowed to speak that opinion until they play this game at least once. Like it's so um, visceral in, in, in teaching this point, you know? I mean, it's just wild to me as well that like it's now become this radical thing for science fiction to do, which is to, you know, think about alternatives to really experience them, to simulate them, experience them in a, you know, really visceral or effective way, uh, rather than really get lost in what what's already existing which i think is you know it's 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 hard right because the the all there is no alternative has that hard power of actively preventing people from resourcing developing you know posing any kind of challenge to the status quo to the dominant uh, hegemony but also has that soft power right that we've been talking about that like it, it it becomes really difficult to imagine something and so even our radical stories become always just reactions to what already exists right and i think this is what gives you a lot of the you know the the kind of the string now or, or dominant theme around you know the dystopian science fiction everything is dystopian because it's all it's all this kind of like just leaning into what already exists, doubling down on it because it's really hard to imagine something different. Yeah, resistance is futile. Yeah, I, and you know, just to be clear, I think science fiction has often imagined difference, but what it's what it's done at its worst is it's pretended that it's foretelling it. Right? Think of the the foundation novels and this idea that like the protagonist is someone who's foreseen the next three thousand years. Uh, and you know, or Heinlein with his, uh, his, um, future histories where he actually was once on a science fiction panel with Robert Silverberg, who's this extremely like bone dry wit gent with a little spade beard and silver hair, very distinguished. And we were talking about science fiction, um, and, uh, the pretense of, of prediction. And someone mentioned Heinlein, he sniffed and he went, mm -hmm, yes, uh, Robert A. Timeline. <laughs> uh, cause Heinlein's books all had these fucking timelines in them about what was going to happen in the next 50 years. And he thought it, he, like, he acted like he thought he was Nostradamus. I don't know if he actually did, right? But he really acted like he thought he was Nostradamus. 
And um, I think that like far fewer science fiction writers now say shit like, oh, you know, you should talk to us because we know the future. We see the future. We live in the future. Uh, and now it's more like, hey, we write parables about today because we don't know shit about the future because nobody knows shit about the future. And that's great because if the future were foretellable, then uh, there wouldn't be any reason for any of us to try and do Although it. I, I can absolutely think of some uh, high profile <laughs> science fiction authors who have a sideline on, on saying, you know, science fiction as futurism oh, and selling those services to whoever wants to buy them. I know. I know. It's terrible. I just, uh, I just had dinner with William Gibson in Vancouver on my tour and we were talking about the next, um, uh, peripheral novel, uh, and about how far back the jackpot could go. And, you know, like I think the jackpot novels are really, um, or, or not the jackpot, but a stub could go. And I think those jackpot novels are really, um, emblematic of this idea of contestable history, right? That like history is not a thing that just happens. It's a thing that people make. Um, and you know, you, you can tie that into his, the trilogy that came before the near future books, uh, and the recent past books about the Gulf war era spook country in those books that are really about like the making of history by people who insist that they are just the, uh, avatars of the forces of history. It goes back to a lot of what we were talking about before about, you know, like Michael Milken blaming VisiCalc or, you know, uh, whoever it is, you know, Danny Laser blaming the, you know, the, oh, it was just too sweet, too seductive or whatever, right? Like it, it becomes, yeah, you can say no. And I, but I think a lot, of, but, but it's also, you know, it's an easier story, a more seductive story to tell that like, well, you just, you couldn't say no. Um, I, I, I think as well, one thing that, you know, I, I, we're coming to the end of our chat. I don't want to keep you for the whole evening, Corey, although we always can. <laughs> um, but I, I think one of the things right. that I really wanted to wrap up on is uh, one, I mean, I think, you know, highlighting kind of forensics accounting here is... I, one one thing that drew me to studying insurance is I think one th is another thing that draws me to really loving the focus on forensic accounting, um, which is you know looking at these kind of avenues and vectors of power that don't get a lot of attention, right? But are extremely influential um, in society. And I think if anything, science fiction, you know it rather than leaning into the dystopias that we know, it also poses a really useful tool for studying the mechanics that we aren't paying attention to. And so when I was reading your book, one thing I was thinking of um, was this, uh, this novel I came across um, from 1955 called Preferred Risk uh, by Frederick Pohl and Lester uh, Del Rey. And it's a novel... It's, oh, it's wow. a really interesting novel and it is about, um, an insurance mega corporation that has become a, uh, a kind of a world government. Uh, and it, it uses its risk uh -huh. management to govern, uh, the world. Um, it enforces total compliance of its rules. Um, and the, and people who are seen, uh, who are, um, judged to run afoul of the insurance company's policies are put into a, a deep freeze, uh, as punishment. And the main character is a claims huh. adjuster for the company as it's called. Um, and then, you know, and then it kind of follows yeah, yeah. him realizing 
what's actually happening, how the company is uh, operating and the kind of like unjust power it has in this, in this world um, and, and kind of, you know, going about a kind of uh, a revelation from the inside and an attempt to kind of tear it down from the inside. But I love it because this is 1955, I, right? And it's already looking at like, uh-huh. wow, these insurance companies sure do have a lot of fucking power. And what it, would it look like if they actually got yeah, what yeah. they wanted? Um, and and yeah. Well, they were the first computerized industry, right? And and Paul loved the man in the gray fl- uh, flannel suit. That's that's the the space merchants too, right? Um, boy, that sounds great. You know, Heinlein's first story was uh, an insure tech story called Lifeline about someone who builds a computer that can predict your exact moment of death uh, and it blows up actuary science and uh, like it, it just just destroys the like the the reinsurance market and it, they're really right, well, good. I need to check really, that really out. Good. I, I was unaware of that. So. Um, yeah, but yeah, but but that that to me is something that I think your book is kind of in this lineage as well of of, of really looking at these um, kind of weird technical mechanics of power that people either don't understand and don't pay attention to and trying to lay bare both the logics, which I think is what, you know, what preferred risk is doing is really trying to say, what are the logics in the comp in these, in this industry already? What would it look like if we actually followed those logics to their conclusion or um, what your book does is kind of looking at the mechanics, right? How is this actually working um, and who's involved and who's doing what? And, and so, yeah, I just read to, Blues. I mean, everybody's definitely got to pick up a copy uh, and 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 start reading Aww. it in the morning, so you can finish it before bedtime. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was so great to have this chat with you guys. I really appreciate it. I was just uh, on my Berkeley stop in the tour. Wendy Liu was my interlocutor, and we we were singing your guys' praises. Oh, that's really. Um, that's it's that's very stuff. sweet, and <laughs> I I love to hear. I I love this uh, this community that we've got. This community of of of, yeah. of tech analysts and critics and writers of various kinds. I know I know Wendy is writing a science fiction novel as well. That's right, she is. Corey, um, where can people find Red Team Blues? Where can they find your work? What do you what what would you like to plug? So Red Team Blues, it's from Macmillan in the U.S. and Bloomsburg from sorry, it's from Macmillan in the U.S. and and Bloomsbury uh, in the rest of the Commonwealth outside of Canada. Uh, and so you can get it all the places you'd normally get it. The one thing that's a little trickier is the audiobook. Uh, I won't allow digital rights management on my work, which means that Audible won't carry it. And so it's available for sale everywhere that's not Audible, which is a whole ton of stores, but to a first approximation, no one shops in them. Uh, there are some really good ones. So Libro.fm works like bookshop where you uh, choose a local bookstore and every time you buy an audiobook, they, they uh, give them some of the money. I also run my own uh, audiobook and ebook store at craphound.com slash shop if you want to go there. But you can get them kind of anywhere. Google Play even lets you do it without DRM, so you can get it there. Um, I write Pluralistic five to seven days a week. It's at pluralistic.net, and that has links to get it as RSS or website or an email uh, or a... Um, uh, uh, Twitter feed or a Mastodon feed or a Tumblr feed or a Medium feed. And all the platforms that I control, there's no ads, no surveillance, and no tracking. I don't know how many people read it because I can't measure that. Um, and uh, what else? Um, 
So the next two books I've got coming out in September, there's a book called uh, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation from Verso. That's a kind of how-to manual for breaking up big tech using interoperability and other remedies that are much faster than traditional antitrust. And then in November, I've got a book coming from Tor that's called The Lost Cause, and it's about uh, truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias after a Green New Deal. Uh, and then the bezel is the book after that. That's out in February, and that's the next Marty Hinch. <sighs> you weren't kidding, Corey. You weren't kidding. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot. There's I, a lot uh, on the horizon. I'm changing my. I'm now in doctoral studies because I need it needs to be my day job to uh, keep up with your output. <laughs> you and my wife. <laughs> Yeah. Flood the zone. I've got the Bannon <laughs> That's technique. Right. That's right. All right. Well, we are looking forward to all of that. And I'm sure we'll have you back to chat about some of them at the very least. I would love um, nothing It's always more than a joy. That. So, and, and everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, something actually you said, Corey, about blogging as a way to do note taking uh, for, for the the books that you're writing made me remember that one of the whole impetuses for starting TMK was I was talking to a dear friend of mine, Natalie Osborne, um, about uh, how difficult it was to keep track of all the stuff that I was reading and thinking about and that was happening in the world. And and I didn't really use Twitter at, you know, enough as a blogging platform to do it. And, and at that time, I was also had promoting my own book and going on podcast and really enjoying that. And Natalie was one of the first people to say, Jathan, why don't you just start a podcast? And that can be like your blogging platform for thinking about and talking about stuff happening every week in the world. And I was like, that's a really good idea. Um, and then uh, 200 and almost 60 episodes later, um, that's really what TMK has um, has become. And, and it has just in the way that you reading and writing about financial crime kind of made you want to, you know, focus on that for a novel rather than the other way around, you know, deciding this is what you want to focus on and then researching it. Um, a, a ton of stuff I have written a, a, about for my day job has come out of stuff that we've just been talking about on TMK and being like, hey, this is actually, there's yeah. something here I should write more about. So it, it's a really great way. As good dialectical materialists, you have other people around to talk about it with, where, which is something I don't do. I just sit there and argue with myself. So I uh, much respect for that. <laughs> well, always a joy, Corey. And with that, um, we'll see you all next time. Later. Adios. Adios.